Iscano. My name is Penelope Menner from Allegheny Territory. I'm Turtle Clan and I'm Seneca. I'm a traditional basket maker. Also, I would say a traditional artist because I do a couple different other. I do beadwork. I do cornhouse dolls and cornhouse weaving. I've been doing this about 22 years. I've been really enjoying sharing the art and uh, going back to the traditional way that they made the art. So I kind of study different pieces from our past. Uh, so I want to make greetings to everybody, to our gods, to our ancestors, to ancestors past and present, and to all of you. Aloha to all of you. And so my name is Lloyd Singh. I am a native Hawaiian here in Hawaii. I am a mixed media artist, but in this case of sharing Ike and knowledge today, we're sharing about EAEA weaving. For my real line of work, I'm a Hawaiian arts teacher at the Kamehameha Schools in Honolulu. So basically, I service kindergarten through 12th grade for age-appropriate Hawaiian art. And I do teach classes as far as the indigenous weaving goes, or weaving. I teach a class on the island of Maui. Like Penny, I've been doing this for about 22 years, so kind of started late, but it's okay. It's all good. <laughs> I really started the game late. Yeah, it really feels like that sometimes. <laughs> Some of the girls uh, in Mohawk territory, they really do have a advantage i feel like they they practice more so than we do down here and it got lost, almost got lost in uh, generation so my cousin she says come home and do it the right way <laughs> so i do beadwork and i do uh, corn husk too i do other things too like i'm um, well, a graphic artist so yeah there's all kinds of different um, artwork that i got into kind of dangerous in a way because my house gets full of different craft supplies <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> yeah. similar like you in the sense i'm a mixed media artist as well I, initially it started out only as weaving but then eventually you know i met other people and i got involved in other kinds of art as well Homework, yeah. woodwork carving actually i took some community classes in cleveland like lloyd said you want to break from your traditional medium and try something else. So I tried basket making and I came home one summer and my cousin Midge, we got to visit with different folks from different areas, which was fantastic because it exposed me to the Micmac and some of the other areas from the Northeast native tribes. She introduced me and I loved it and I haven't really stopped <laughs> since, but um, she was my uh, inspiration, and I lost her in 2006, and she was kind of my spirit guide to continue, basically. And like I said, the Mohawks have a very good representation in the Black Ash, and I continued to really come about this about 2008, when I began teaching more, I began doing speeches, demonstrations, and one thing or another. So it's been a little bit of a, you know, a road of learning. <laughs> and I always like to go back to the utilitarian, which is what we did. We used our baskets for every kind of purpose. About 23 years ago, I was teaching up at a Kamehameha School, teaching Hawaiian culture to ninth graders. And just to give you a brief background, Kamehameha Schools is a private school. Um, we have three campuses. Our school was established in 1887. You have to be part Hawaiian to be a student to attend there. And so anyway, I was teaching Hawaiian culture. That's one of the required courses for high school students at ninth grade to learn Hawaiian culture. And so they have a cultural practitioner project. So as a means of getting our students to go back to the roots of learning cultural practices within their own families. And if they can't find someone in their own family, then go to the the next community and find someone but you know it wasn't that extreme so I decided well if I'm going to make my students do that then I will take up something as well uh, just to show that you know be a good role model that you know I will learn something that I've never learned before and I decided to take up basketry because in Hawaii we have different kinds of basketry we have lauhala baskets 
We have coconut frond weaving for basketry. And then we have using the iye root. In fact, uh, my two mentors who inspired me to do this artwork were not Hawaiian. You know, because at, there really, really was no Hawaiians um, taking up this art form. And there may have been a couple, but they weren't out there so that people knew about them. So it was these two non-Hawaiians, Patrick Korimoto, who really revived the art of this type of basketry back in the early 80s. And my mentor, I do have a picture of my mentor. Uh, his name is Raymond Nakama. So he's also Okinawan. So he's not Hawaiian at all, but he really excelled in this type of form of basketry. In fact, uh, my two mentors who mentored me or inspired me to do this artwork were not Hawaiian. It was these two non-Hawaiians who really revived the art of this type of basketry back in the early 80s. And so, you know, inspired by these guys to learn, I, I got the whatever books I could find from the Arts and Crafts of Hawaii, which was a Bishop Museum publication on, in basketry, and I tried to do it on my own. And, you know, it wasn't so bad, but, you know, when you start basketry, you usually tend to make everything super big. And then eventually it gets real small to the right scale as you get better and better with your weaving. And then I met my mentors and then they actually really kind of took me alongside. And unfortunately, my mentor too passed away in 2011 and he was really young. So, but, you know, we come from a culture in Hawaii where a lot of things that is traditionally Hawaiian was brought back by a non-Hawaiian. It was these non-Hawaiians that took an interest in learning it. And, you know, I was, of course, interested in it because I couldn't afford to buy their beautiful pieces. So I said, well, I'm going to learn how to make it then. I took it upon myself to learn as much as I could from the books. And then my mentor actually was willing to share with me. And since, you know, people started to see the work I was doing. And so I was teaching in the community college for adult community ed programs. I work with my students today. I just tell them, you know, I'm still a student myself. But, you know, I'm sharing with you what I know coupled with our traditional knowledge of what we do know, and um, also giving opportunities for my students to develop their own styles and techniques, provided that most of the traditional knowledge is intact there, but giving them the freedom to explore and find new ways to advance the art form to make it more contemporary and more appealing to a younger generation of weavers. I was wondering what kind of material Lloyd was using because it's interesting. I was using cattail last fall and of course it probably has to be wet to utilize, correct? Yeah. So the plant that we use, it's actually an aerial root. So it's a vine. It's called iye, but in English we call it a persinatea arborea or they like to loosely call it the wild pandanus vine. You can see the vine here with all the nice long green leaves that are kind of shooting out there. But all of these long dangling straight pieces, that's the rootlets. They hang from the vine. And so we cut and collect the rootlets. And as you can see, some of the rootlets, you know, they have they fork and they branch off. And then you get like two pieces now from one rootlet. So it's very woody when you actually harvest it. So they make for like very nice fish traps as well as baskets. And we can splice them. So when you're in the forest, it kind of looks like this. You have a canopy of the forest. You know, you have sunlight, but not very bright sunlight. We have areas, forests in Hawaii, where it's real wide and open and the sun hits. And the plant does not thrive in those kind of environments. It thrives in where there's a lot of trees. It's a parasitic plant. So it climbs a lot of the koa trees or lehua trees. And then you look for the roots. And some of these roots are as tall as a telephone pole. I mean, when, when they're like that tall and from a very, very tall tree and the roots are just hanging down like a telephone pole, you know, that's when you like kind of grab it and take a step back and kind of that quick jerk snap and then the whole thing just comes down. And then, of course, you know, when you're in the forest, you're not going to be dragging 10 feet of rootlets hanging down and you're tripping over everything. In the I normally say to cut it about six feet and then just make bundles and tie them in bundles. So it's easier to take it out of the forest uh, when it's time uh, to harvest. So these pictures here was really the last time I went to harvest the roots. That was back in 2010. So that was 11 years ago. And the person that gave us the access to their land was actually my wife's cousin, was the person in the red shirt. So this is on the big island of Hawaii. And on the big island in the forest is where our ab abundant supply of this rootlets from this plant grows. The person in the middle there, his name is Lance LaPierre. 
he was my first uh, apprentice and he decided to be an official apprentice under that uh, State Foundation Cultural Arts Program. And so this image here that I'm holding is made from those roots. And you know, it has a different color, almost looks like corn, like maize corn with the different colors. That's the natural color of the rootlet. So I just left it in there. And again, you know, so well, I love the natural color of it. So actually this is a religious image. You know, in ancient times, these were covered with netting and covered with feathers, but it was woven like out of this rootlet. And, you know, so this was like a war god, you know, and all of our high chiefs had a similar war god like this. Some of them looked more human with human hair on top. Some of them had the crest like this one, just like the helmet does. And then of course we're using, you know, native woods for the eyes, mother of pearl shell, abalone for the, you know, the back of the eyes and dog teeth. And so, you know, the idea was to empower the chief and, and his people and the army uh, to give them strength or mana and to instill fear in their opponents. Some of them actually have like human hair, all human hair covered. Depending on the, the chief and the maker, you know, it would have more human attributes to it than others. But, you know, this is made with the Ie'e roots. So it feels it has a different kind of feel, different weight. It feels more authentic. Whereas... This is a good practice material, but it's not ye. This is rattan. And so we use like, you know, caning wicker um, or rattan. So we practice with lots of caning material. That's but it's a very good alternative resource to use because it's half round. So the caning supply is half round, which is like when we do our weaving, we, we split the rootlets. So we get two half rounds. Or sometimes if it's really thick, like pencil thick, then you might get two half rounds and get a couple of splints in between. And the splints are used for the ribs that go up and down in this image. The wefts that goes across are the half rounds. That's the one that's done doing the twining is the half rounds, whereas the splints are used as the frame or the ribbing of the actual image itself. So, you know, but in this case, when we're using rattan, I'm not so hard on my students. You gotta save all your stuff, all the little pieces, save it. Yeah, some of it we do, but you know, it's rattan and then we, we can get it so cheap. They don't even touch the EAE roots until they've mastered the forms of weaving. And so that way is when they do have the rootlets, they don't waste the rootlets because you know, it's just so hard to come by to get it that you don't wanna be trying to practice using the EAE roots. So that's now, is that one is that one unit or do you weave in sections like, I see the nose is separate and then oh, yeah. it on. Yeah, so originally the this bas this piece actually started right here. This is where the pico or the center of our weave started. Okay. It's actually under the bridge of the nose. And so you weave this whole portion here like a basket. And then you cut it with the scissors and undo the rows of weaving and reform the weave to shape the mouth. Then you can close on the inside. So the closing is all up on the upper lip here and the lower lower lip, the closing. Then from here, you insert uh, warps through the roof of the mouth to form this crest here that goes okay. up here. And then you have to weave, you know, the wefts on that. And then you poke, you weave a cover, and then you stick the warps through and weave this over here. And then you weave another flap that goes over here on the top, like another flap that goes on the outside. And then the neck is a bunch of warps that's poking through. And then you weave around and around and around and you close on the bottom here. So the closing was all occurring on the inside here as well. Right. So now how long would a piece like that take you? This one actually took almost six months to make. It's actually modeled after an artifact, which is in the British Museum, which is one meter tall. This is a third of that size. Wow. The artifact is covered with feathers, so you can't even see the armature, the framing of it. You, don't, you just have to guess by the shape of it. And this is what it is, you know, without the feather work. So was it actually worn, like, as a piece, like well, a head? This is actually one of the war gods. It was carried on a pole. Oh, okay. Above the army so that the people of the army could see it as they, you know, as wow. through. And then the enemies of the opposite army could see it. And ideally, it's carrying these war god images. was supposed to empower the army that carries it and instill fear in the opposition. So although these are traditional and we don't really worship these images in the way the ancestors did and how they put so much energy and, and faith into these images that are supposed to be representations of their gods or their, you know, their war gods in old Hawaii, 
we teach this to the students today because it's still an important form of the basketry because this is the only way you can do it with this kind of basketry that we have these images. So this is rattan. And, you know, the other image I showed earlier was made of EE, the authentic, the real indigenous material. But that was just to answer David's question of how we've evolved it. You know, yeah, there's change. Um, and, you know, thank goodness for our Hawaiian arts we can practice with rattan so that when they get to the real EAE, they, you know, they're not going to waste it and they know what to do with it. You know, it's going to come out as well as can be, you know, well planned. Which I was going to ask, are those woven pieces or carved pieces that you have on display? These are actually woven pieces. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. We have contemporary. Yes. <laughs> but the technique is, you know, of our style of weaving, twine basketry. You can evolve from something traditional like this. Wow. A chief would wear to wow. temporary where everybody can wear, you know. Right, right. And then, you know, we have other helmets that were covered with feather work. So even though the inside is woven, that the cap portion, the oh crest is woven, but it's covered with a fine netting. And feathers are tied in bundles onto the netting, and that's how we have our feathered helmets. Oh, my goodness. First, wow. More traditional than... Um, it definitely looks like an intricate piece, though. <laughs> and time-consuming. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not I did have a question for you. What kind of tools do you use when you weave? Are you using a knife or scissors or... Any kind of blade? So, you know, the rootlet of the EE root, it almost has a satiny feel. Once you actually scrape the bark off, the outer bark, and you get to the actual core of the rootlet itself, once you splice it, it kind of has a satin feel to it. I've used anything from a butter knife to the edge of a shell. Um, and I sometimes use X-Acto knives if I really want to splice it real thin just to get the nice clean cuts in there. I mean, they're not traditional. But when I want to be traditional, I'll say, okay, can, can you use this shell here, guys? Yeah. Or a shark tooth knife and then kind of like, you know, show it like how it was. But, you know, we live in modern times. We use the modern tools. So, you know, butter knives and exacto knives, really. You know, and I can use scissors as well. It's usually work well with what we do. Unfortunately, hopefully that, that answers your question. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I use a, a jackknife and a, a straight edge and then some shears. And when my cousin was working with the Mohawk ladies, they said, it was almost like a smack of the hand. Uh, she said, you're only getting the knife, rather, no scissors. So they wouldn't let them use um, anything other than the blade, <laughs> which I was told it was, you know, like natural glass that would clean it or shells, like you said. So same with, you know, like when they did pottery and, and that. There is one tool that I had. It was a cutter. It's a oh, gauge. Yeah. So they used to use clock findings. And I think these are exacto blades, like you were just saying. And each artist, carpenter, he does a different style too. So these ones fit nicely in my, my little hands, but just depends on who makes them. Now they're expensive too. I very rarely use them because I end up hand cutting everything. Instead, mm. you know, just with the knife or the scissors. So, we have a tool similar to what you just shared, but it's used in the in Lahala weaving. With the black ash, they grow in the swampy areas. I actually went out with the gentleman and we went out in the swamp area to look for a tree. So, that's kind of like looking for a straight up and down tree. So, we were in our muck boots walking around. This is a big tree they're trying to get the bark off of it and get it ready to pound so it might be six to eight feet depending on the the guy who takes it and then he uses a hickory mallet but you could use the back of an axe handle to pound and lift off the splints so you can see the difference in the years the year growth there and uh, he can lift that right up once he's made a cut into the wood and then lift it right up and off, off of the log. So he'd go all the way around in a rotation. Now, this guy is a fantastic artist. The whole time we were there, he was pounding that log and he walked away with a bundle 
under his arm. Yep. There's the bundles. He took that fresh off the tree. It was like green. So sometimes those are really super thick. It depends on the pounder and you have to soak those in order to um, break them down. And like you were saying, you just kind of like make that motion of, of breaking the fibers down. So depending on the thickness of it, and it's probably wet, you want to loosen those fibers in order to split it. So when I take it through the splitter, I just cut a nice straight line across, and then I open up that splint. And that's where the satin is on the inside. Mm. So you get the length of that whole splint when you open up that, and it's such a lovely thing. <laughs> it's going to be maybe six feet, depending on, like I said, the pounder. And then we scrape all the fibers off of the opposite side. So the, the satin's on one side and the fibers are on the other side. And if you can split down again, that's fantastic. <laughs> this is funny. It's actually like a door hinge on the one side. And we use a paint scraper and we scrape the fibers off instead of my jackknife. And it's a straight edge paint scraper and you just pull all those fibers off. So that's a bundle of nice, clean splint ready to go. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's like a couple a couple of uh, years ago, actually, when I had that much splint. And um, sometimes they can go up in price depending on the pounder. Right now, they're $40 a bundle and it's all raw. Yeah, they pounded the log, but they I have to do all the after work. So those are ready to be gauged. So then you gauge them to whatever size. That's an eighth of an inch. It just depends on what project you're working on. So I do some in uh, different increments so that I have them ready to go. It's like fabulous to have that because <laughs> you don't always have that uh, material available at one time or even that quantity. And that's a round startup of a basket. I always work in eight. To start up and then I add on eight more. So it might be 16, it might be 24, it might be 32, depending on how big the basket is. So and then that's the little star that I do with the sweet grass. And you can see in the center, you have to go a little thinner in order to get the grass closer to the center. And mm -hmm. for some folks, you know, getting them to realize that you need the thin splint in there in order to get started my popcorn bowl <laughs> i actually weave around yeah i weave around an object so usually there's some sort of helper that can shape it like a mold and then this one took second place at uh, the ganunnigan show over in rochester area and i use seagrass as well as the sweet grass and then i use the the purple element in there it's a purse so at the top, it opens up in a tray. Air weaving is plating. Yes. Yeah. Kind of a technique. Yeah. yeah. And then we also incorporate some curls once in a while. So depending on, you know, different projects, I think the, I call it my grandma's basket. That one has the curls there. Um, that was uh, modeled after my grandmother's basket. I think it's a male basket or a comb basket. Um, it would be next to the door, right near a mirror. If there was a mirror <laughs> in the house, they'd mm. throw the mail in there or they'd throw a comb in there. But um, the curls are decorative. And those are mini gathering um, baskets. And then um, I had the beadwork incorporated on the one. Yeah, those are my corn husk. And I just weave my corn husk. I sewed the moccasins together. Those are both gone to different museums that purchased those. Wow. And um, that was a, some sort of gathering basket. Somebody said tobacco. I don't know for sure. And I love that center right there. That's, I can almost smell that <laughs> sweet grass. That's the beginning of a basket also. So just a few of the pieces that I wanted to share. There's my little girl. So for us here at home, men and women did do, both did twine basketry. However, 
certain pieces because of its significance were done by men. Women made a lot of basic baskets, uh, fishing baskets, uh, traps that they would use for fishing in the rivers or along the, uh, the river mouth where it meets the ocean and then tide pools. So women would go weave those things. But I think when it comes down to like the, the helmets that were worn by the male chiefs, they were done by men who were the crafter, the weavers. And even the, um, the religious images that I have in the background there, these were done by men as well. You know, back in that time period, I guess there were certain things that women were not able to do because of uh, the cultural lens of their menstruation, which in our culture, it was not considered a, a clean thing. Of course, back in that ancient times, um, women did not make those kind of things that would touch the head of a, man, of a male chief to wear on his head or even the, uh, the, the god, the war gods that were like held by the men as well. So. But for the most part, yeah, they did, both of them did weaving, but just certain pieces. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would agree with that too. Uh, there wasn't uh, so much a, a religious aspect to the weaving. It was the heaviness of the splint because of the utilitarian baskets. Mm. Um, those are pretty heavy duty baskets. I mean, they were really solid pieces. So the men would be able to move them easier and quicker. And they also did the carving. Um, my dad, he was a traditional carver. He made some masks and some rattles and uh, horn rattles, uh, turtle rattles and bark rattles. The only thing that I can really uh, equate that to would be lacrosse and snow snake here because women are not supposed to touch the snow snake. That's a men's kind of a thing. It's a winter game. And those pieces are male dominated. And, I, and lacrosse was also considered a war game. So I can understand that they didn't want the women to be exposed to that kind of a I guess environment, they even, let's say with, within 20 years, didn't allow women to play lacrosse, but there is li women lacrosse leagues. Yeah, I can understand the, the cultural significance of different things for that reason, but nothing as far as the baskets in, in terms of uh, men and women uh, distinctions, other than they were heavier in the material. I've, I did find uh, Mohawk basket makers are mostly women and they do very delicate and fine work. I do find that some of the men that I've come across are fantastic uh, weavers. And, and I'm so glad they're young men because they can keep the tradition alive. Um, I have a few men that are interested, but they haven't really reached out and they're pretty independent because the same ash is used for um, our headpieces, which are called gestoas, and mm. it's the framework that they're looking for from the ash, the, the black ash, and um, that's the base of the headpiece. Like I said, every part of the tree was used, so when they ended up um, having the heavier pieces, that's where those pieces go, So um, because it's hard work to break those down. And uh, your body pays for it after a while. <laughs> I, I was surprised that how, I mean, if I looked at the log as a carver, I would say, okay, all that white layer was like the, um, the sap wood. And then you get to the heartwood, which is the core, the darker color. And I was thinking, man, we would use all of the wood. I mean, we wouldn't even think about breaking the, the sap wood that it would actually split that way that you could get splints out of it. I mean, I found that it's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, that yeah, it, it, is, very hard. It, is, it is pretty, it is pretty amazing. Um, and in, and the pounders are, are very few and far between. Um, <laughs> it's hard work. It's hard work. We actually tried to get the lacrosse boys to help out and, uh, get some experience with that. And, um, you can't do it alone. Here in Allegheny on the river, they used to be able to hear the pounders and it would just echo through the valley. And they and I got a recording, which is really precious because so those kind of memories for some of those folks is really kind of precious in that way because they're like, oh, yeah, I remember so and so he used his grandpa used to pound the baskets for his wife. So it was almost like a family thing. Mm. And then um, our family really didn't do the basket making I have 
when I was talking to my auntie before she passed away, she had said that grandma's baskets were over in Kanawango, which is like near Amish country here. And they'd sell them for a quarter. And that would allow them to get some of the staples, like the sugar or the flour, different things for the household. And then she says, and I remember we, we pay the, our baskets are over in Amish country, I guess. So the handles were made from hickory, which my grandpa used to carve for her. And uh, you can't get a handle maker nowadays, <laughs> but handle making is another art in itself too. So I do appreciate those carvers. I, I was curious, Penny, as far as like um, the beating of the, the sapwood of the ash tree, do they keep on beating it till they get to the heartwoods? In other words, pretty much all that white layer of sapwood is becomes the becomes a splint, and then once they get to the core, that's, they just use it for whatever else, carving or whatever. Yeah, well, the by the time they get to the heartwood, they figure it's almost shattered because they are shattering that that splint. Um, so it becomes a mallet. <laughs> it's kind of broken down by the time they get to the center of it. Now, different tribes and nations have different ways that they do it. They would slice into the length of it or, you know, down into it and quarter it and make billets out of it. And that's pretty much how the lacrosse players also make their um, lacrosse sticks. So that's what the handle makers would also do, but they pound that and that would also lift up. So I talked to a New Hampshire native, but he showed me how he did it. And then some of them actually have machines that they've developed like a hammer. And they automated it, which I'm like, again, I'm like, you guys are so ingenious because they've eliminated the step, you know, because <laughs> it's like, it's hard work and I understand it is. So they have some sort of press, which vibrates across the splint and they push it through. It's pretty interesting. Every nation that I've come across, at least we've all come around in some way to develop an easier way to help make our job less stressful. Technology works. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was just going to say I have a hydro flask that I weaved on, and it's been several years already, and I've dropped my hydro many times. The weave on top of the hydro has protected the hydro, from, but it's never really dented my hydro flask. It's been a good buffer. And, you know, that's just for tan. That's not even using the EAE. The EAE is much more sturdier. It would last a lot, a pretty long time. And what's interesting about the EAE roots is, you know, bugs don't like to eat it. So it kind of has a long lasting shelf life, if you will, um, that it would be pretty durable. And we also use EAE to weave on our gourds, our water gourds. You know, like Penny, it also, if you drop the water gourd, you know, the gourd would shatter, water would come all over the place. But having that weave on top of the gourd even if you drop the gourd and crack the gourd, it's woven so tight and it keeps it together, keeps the water from leaking out. So it's a pretty durable material. And I guess you have to give the museum credit for taking care of, you know, storing these pieces. Again, the fact that some of these are like 300 years old and they're still very functional today. You could take it right out of the museum and throw a lot of stuff in a basket and it would support a lot of weight. It's still a pretty strong material. Yeah, I have to agree with Lloyd. They were trying to actually like do a, a carbon dating to see how old the oldest basket was, but they do disintegrate. There was a gentleman in my travels, he stood on his potato basket and he says, and I weigh over, you know, whatever. And he was laughing because he was standing on top of his basket and he was proud that it didn't crush under his weight, you know? So that kind of thing um, is pretty impressive. So the age of a typical basket is really hard to gauge right now. Um, um, I know that the color is another thing that gives them away because the, the it's almost like a patina, I guess, would, is what you would say. Uh, it darkens um, naturally. I never put anything on there, uh, my material, to protect it, honestly. I even kind of cringe a little bit when I see color, but I've used color myself. 
I keep everything as natural as I can. People say you can use tea or Kool-Aid or, or one thing or another. And, but I don't want anything, like you said, eating it. I don't want anything to destroy it. Some of them are fragile. I guess it just depends on the weave or the, the, the splint because some of them are paper thin. Like you can actually see through them. If you, um, Other times they're heavy duty and they're thick and they're meant to withstand and do their jobs uh, for the most part. I do the corn wash basket and the corn sifter and I don't clean those splints at all because you want the rough inside so that when they go through and they clean the, the corn, you want those eyes off of the corn. So you need that rough surface inside there to uh, clean the corn. So it's like a natural sifter. It, the coarseness is on purpose. It's intentional. So again, it, it ages. Uh, it's almost like a, <laughs> depending on what you're going to use it for, they're going to fade. It has a long, it has a longevity, but it's also limited. Um, that's a good point you brought up there, Penny, about color fading. Even with our natural dyes, that's the problem with natural dyes. Even though you come up with a mordant that will fix the color that prevents it from fading, ultimately it will fade because mm -hmm. it's a natural dye. This helmet here. It's not natural dye, but it looks better than natural dye because this is writ. You know, I got it from Walmart. So it's a nice traditional Hawaiian dye that I can use to create the black when I dye my material, the EAE in the black. But it comes out because of the natural material, it doesn't absorb the color like how fabric does. So it doesn't it become vibrant black. It looks more like the artifact black, kind of like a yeah. dull. You know, our black was obtained by dying in the taro in the mud of a like of a taro patch, or uh, you know, and then using burning soot from a from a kukui nut, and then collecting the soot, mixing with the oil, and then kind of like rubbing it on top of our on the rootlets so that it would get that color, you know, and then, but over time it fades. So that's yeah. why even in our practice today, even though we teach our students the traditional techniques. When we want to dye something, we just go to writ because the colors last longer. They're more vibrant. Um, you know, that's one way how we've evolved um, with cultural practice of using what's available today to enhance some of the traditional stuff we've done in the past. Yeah, that's uh, true. I actually, I have a, like, Christmas spell that I did. Wow. And you're talking about writ dye. I um, put purple on there and um there's a sweet grass but i do have a little bell in there <laughs> so yeah we kind of like modernize different things and this is you know an, an interpretation everybody's has a different style which is really kind of cool and it comes out in your artwork and um i always thought i don't really have a style and i i guess i really do <laughs> um i try to you know simplify it and I, you know, I learn it, I break it down and then I try something at least one time so that I know how it, how it works or how it was built. I think that's a curiosity in me. So breaking down the patterns was really the fun part and learning from our past is another thing that I really kind of appreciate. You never stop. You keep learning different techniques from different teachers, from even different communities. So, and I keep trying to um, keep it to the front and center in this community because there's only a few of us here that um, actually keep, you know, engaged with it. More curiosity about our past and our history and our culture. You know, I was going to get answer Will's question. You know, a good example is I made a helmet out of rattan. And I made a helmet out of EAE. And after 20 years, the rattan helmet started to become brittle. It dries up. You know, the rattan dries up over time. Things start to break. And then, you know, you don't want to touch it because, you know, especially like my one of the first helmets I made was a spoked helmet for my mother-in-law. And it was one of the, I was happy because it was one of the best helmets I made in my early years of making helmets. So it was pretty nice. And then I said, oh, I'll give it to my, mo my mother-in-law. And then I went to my father-in-law in his office, and then, you know, that was it. And I finally got it back after all these years, but it's all brittle compared to the EAE one, which is very sturdy and firm. You know, that helmet doesn't even look like it. It's not even, you know, it's still functional, you know, and it has no signs of brittle, you know, or breaking. So, you know, just the natural material, I think, in general is 
in this case, much more uh, has a longer longevity, a longer life than the modern pieces or material that we may acquire from like the, you know, from the Caney and Wicker store. Pretty much only here in Hawaii that we use this plant, although it's an indigenous plant, meaning that it's found in other parts of the Pacific, only our people actually used it the way that I'm gonna share with you folks today for the kind of basketry that we do, which is unique to Hawaii. And so I do a lot of the type of weaving with the basketry I do are actually functional type pieces. Some of them are traditional, meaning that it was only used in ancient times, although I'm finding ways to evolve it so that there are ways that we can use them today so that it's practical for the generations of today to honor our ancestors of the past. I'd say 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to work with the black ash. And right now we're in jeopardy with the emerald ash borer that traveled across the country and it's devastated our trees. So this is a traditional medium that was used from long ago. I'm, I'm doing the same technique that they did way back when. And I, and I always like to go back to the utilitarian, which is what we did. We used our baskets for every kind of um, purpose, uh, carrying um, different items from the fields, maybe corn, uh, gathering um, tobacco or fruits and vegetables. Every part of the tree was also taken and used. So there's a lot of learning when I first started this. And so when it comes to EE, e, you know how the images are back here? Well, there are a couple of caskets that were, that were woven with EE e and also with coconut husk fiber. And they're called the Ka'ai. And they were the ones that held the bones of two great chiefs, Niloa and Lonoi Kamakahiki, that were from the big island of Hawaii. And so they were buried in a cave. And we wouldn't have known about it if they weren't found, you know, by explorers. Mm. Looking into finding, going into a cave and find out it's a burial cave and finding these Hawaiian artifacts and things like that. There are two images and they contain the bones of these two different chiefs. And those are the only ones that we know of that actually have the, the evie or the bones of these two chiefs. So that is a very unique situation where this material was actually woven as a Senate casket. With the, with the coconut husk fiber as well to protect the bones. You know, and people today still ask me, oh, would you mind making me a basket? Why? Or as an urn, in lieu of an urn, to store the ashes of their family remains. I said, I, you know, I, I can, um, you know, but that, you know, that's an unusual request that people ask me to do something like that. But I can see why they would do that, because this material is much more uh, durable than like using leaf or lauhala leaf, where Nowadays, when people are develop, when developers you know develop our land and they uncover these bones, ancestral bones or remains of uh, old Hawaiian remains, you know what they do nowadays? They find lahala weavers and they weave baskets and they beat natural bark cloth and they wrap the bones in them and they put them in these baskets and they reinter these baskets back into the earth to you know not to disturb the remains, but you know those can deteriorate much more easier than this material. I've been asked for different types of baskets, too, for holding different items, but um, I cannot think of anything that was unusual. <laughs> can, can either of you think of any, you know, ancient time stories or legends from your indigenous cultures that comes to mind that you may be able to share? You know, there is a story about this chiefess who made a chastity belt. You know, back in those days, in those ancient times, you know, it was not uncommon for a chiefess or a chief to have multiple spouses. Well, that one particular spouse was very jealous, and that's why I had the chastity belt made first to cover her private parts to prevent another chief from fooling around while the husband was away so that she wouldn't take on other husbands. And that chiefess was Lukia. And, you know, the chastity belt was woven with that e and e in a way, it was so difficult that even her uh, her unwanted lovers couldn't even figure out how to undo the weaving that was done on her chastity belt, you know. And unfortunately, there's no olelo no eo or wise saying to that one, but then it's just a good testament of the of the strength of that rootlet. 
it was such a web that, you know, even her husband couldn't figure it out. Like it backfired on him because ultimately she didn't want to have anything to do with him either. So like, oh, no. too bad for him. <laughs> It's um, everything that you make with your own hands. It's like um, ancestral. I have the the eyes to see these through and my hands have the ability to complete them and the knowledge to finish and share it. And uh, letting them go is kind of hard. It's part of you because you, you took the time. You're holding on to this piece of uh, art, this knowledge on how our ancestors did it and feels like they're watching me over my shoulder <laughs> so my grandma's piece was probably the most touching one because I remember it you know hanging on the wall rather it was the comb basket she used it for mail <laughs> so I do remember going to her house and sitting on her lap when I was younger and she had baskets and cornhouse dolls all over the house and the masks from my grandpa so just appreciating those things and having them in my memory because I came from 12 kids. So I'm number 11. Art was always in our home. So I appreciate that fact because not everybody grew up like that. You know, even though my dad was an iron worker, he made okay money. He was still a carver traditionally. And he held that knowledge from learning from the past. And he wanted to share what he knew in his way. And that's what I'm doing too. I'm kind of sharing what I know. <laughs> you know, um, I agree with Penny that, you know, there are many pieces that I've made that have special feelings to me. Um, some of them I actually kept and some of them I've actually sold. I, had a, I was at a conference on Maui and I had this large shrimp trap that was made out of the ear, ear roots. So it was authentic. So it was a full size shrimp trap. And this old Hawaiian man came up to me and asked, oh, how much is that? And so the old man, he nodded, shook his head, and he went away. I guess he told his wife because his wife wanted it. Because she remembers using a trap like that to go shrimping. So they had one in their home. And her seeing it kind of brought back those memories. Well, they didn't buy it. So I said, okay, no worries. So we ran into them. When we were leaving the hotel, I told my wife, there they are. That's the one. So you know what? Stop, stop, stop. Get out of the car. I out the trap. I gave it to the auntie who wanted it. And I just said, you know, just it's just our aloha to you folks because I know that it has sentimental value to you. So, you know, here you go. Uh, you know, you're welcome. We took pictures with them. And, you know, they felt really happy. She was happy. And that was the end. A couple years later, we were doing a presentation at Huino um, El Visual Arts Center. And the husband came walking in. Nice to see you, Uncle. I remember you. And then uh, his wife made a quilt for us. And it has all little squares. It's made with all vintage Aloha clothing fabric. So my wife wanted to wanted to mahalo you and thank you and your wife for the gift of the shrimp trap that she made this quilt for you. And I was like, oh my gosh. But, you know, it just goes to prove that, you know, blessings in ways that you don't anticipate. And this was one of those times. So, you know, that to me, you know, that shrimp trap may not have been as special to me as it was to that auntie, but um, she was so blessed by the gesture that, you know, she blessed us with a quilt that we have in our home now that we use on our chair. You know, we do have a kuleana to teach and pass on that knowledge because, you know, it's not our knowledge. It's our ancestors' knowledge. It's our people's knowledge. It's a wealth of knowledge that needs, that our people need to have access to. And, you know, unfortunately, in these days and times, you know, it's just too far and few to find the kumus out there, the teachers to teach these ancestral arts. And, you know, and Zoom is not, although Zoom is great for sharing knowledge, it's not necessarily the best way to impart this knowledge. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer of hands-on and got to be in the presence in and doing it and teaching hands-on in the presence of the teacher and having that interaction because it's so very difficult to show what you're doing by holding it to a camera on the computer and hoping that your students can get it without them being frustrated of, um, you know, understanding, comprehending the information. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Hands-on is always so much better, being able to explain it and them to feel the material and to actually do the breakdown or cleaning the splints or one thing or another 
I think they appreciate it too. I think they also get a sense of pride when they walk away with a project because they're like, I couldn't believe I did that. You made it look so easy. Sometimes I do spoil them. I think that they walk away with a sense of accomplishment themselves by attending my classes or different things that I've offered. And even the elders, uh, I taught pin cushions and they just loved it. They're like, oh, these are so precious. They love them. And it was by their own hand. And they appreciated me and the art and the time that we took to make it together. You know, I was just thinking about Penny. Was, it takes many years to develop the kind of knowledge that we share in the work that we do. And as teachers, we've made the process for us so much easier for them, giving them the information, the techniques that probably took me a decade to kind of understand it thoroughly and just really took that 10 years out of their experience to advance their work so that they could grow in it faster than it took me to learn it. Ultimately, as I tell the students, you know, it's going to come down to years. It's just repetition and practice. Mm-hmm. Practice, you're going to get more insights, your own personal insights about how you feel about it, how it's working for you, how the, how the material works in your hands. Your hands will become, will become mature in the handling and how much tension, how much, you know, all those kind of things that's tied to weaving. So we're at the stage where we can't afford to give them another 20 years to learn it, to take what I've known now. Yeah. Because we're trying to save the art and not just preserve, but the, also the perpetuation of it. I've enjoyed learning um, ever since I've started um, doing this. So it's been, a, it's been a good journey for me. Thank you so much, Penny. All right. Well, thank you all for, for taking the time and making the time. <laughs> okay, now I scan them. All right, we'll be thank we'll you. Yeah. Take care, Thank you.